Uh, we made one more transition I'm just going to tell you about. It's not involving someone leaving. It's about someone staying, but they're going to be serving in a different capacity. So I'm going to invite Travis Lowe to the stage. Everybody give it up for Travis. <laughs> Hi, Travis. Hi, Mark. Last time. We've done this three times. Uh, I met Travis 15 years ago on the first Sunday that I uh, was here at Bay Life Church. If you were here, you know, the first Sunday I was here, we shut the thing down. There was a hurricane. I don't remember which one it was, but in 2004, there was a bunch of them. Uh, so we didn't have any church, and I stood right up there by those glass doors with this kid. Kid, well, He was a kid then. He's not now. He was 14 years old, and we got to know each other over guitar love and other things. And, uh, and, and I have been just blessed as his friend and pastor just to see him grow to be the man that he is. I am super blessed to know that he's going to be a husband in 13 days. He's going to get married. Anyway, he's done everything here. He was a, a janitor for a few years, and, uh, uh, but then as he finished his schooling and, and just sensed the call of God on his life, he started teaching our college and career ministry six years ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and then he's just you know, worked his way uh, into uh, just our lives in, in many capacities, teaching in foundations, serving up here in our pulpit. Anyway... All that to say, uh, it has become very clear to us and to Travis, we're all affirming this in the spirit, that he's uh, meant to take a greater role in our teaching ministry here. So he's our teaching pastor now. And uh, yeah, uh, and and, uh, what that means is I'm going to take a lot more weekends off. No, that's not what that means. Anyway, uh, (laughs) now what it does mean is that we're going to kind of have a teaching team mentality. We want to just have as many voices from as many generations and many different vantage points coming uh, to us as a body and, and God using us uh, to, to dig into his word together. And so I love listening to Travis preach. I trust you do too. He's going to be doing it more. He's going to be serving in foundations and some other adult class opportunities. And he's also going to be developing a whole arm of online opportunities already, you know, uh, elbows deep into that. It's pretty great. And uh, so I'm excited. It's, it's a great thing uh, for us as we move forward. Uh, I'm excited to share the, uh, the teaching opportunities that we have with you, Travis. And I'm going to pray for him as he starts his next leg of the journey. And I'm going to pray for our offering. I'm going to pray for our service. Let's do that right now. God, thank you so much for a chance to um, you know, celebrate uh, the ways that you've used us uh, with orphans here and around the world, the ways that uh, you're going to use us next Sunday night at Fall Festival, the ways that you've used Corey and, and that you have used Travis and are going to continue to use them both in their uh, next opportunities. Um, what a joy it is to be your church. Uh, Lord, uh, I want to pray that as we take this offering, we'd give it cheerfully, not out of compulsion, but because uh, you've given to us and that you'd use these gifts for your glory. I want to pray for Travis as he speaks now. Uh, Lord, um, speak through him and and thank you for gifting him, Uh, but keep him and I and anybody else who stands in front of a crowd here humble and yielded to you and your spirit and uh, speak through us, Lord, and speak through Travis now. Uh, I thank you one last time because you are worthy of my thanks and my praise uh, and our praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Bailiff, if you would do me a favor and turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 14 through to 22. And if you're joining us for the first time in a while or maybe the first time ever, it's, it's worthwhile to know that we as a church are walking chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus. And also, we have a really long way to go. So we'll be spending the better part of this next year off and on in this book. But where we've come from so far is, has been that we've traced the life of this particular man named Moses who is integral to the story of Scripture 
going forward. Moses was born during an interesting time in Israel's national history because Israel has been in slavery for some 400 years in the nation of Egypt. And during that time, they've multiplied to the point that they've become a threat to the powers that be. That Egyptian leadership is concerned that if these people unite, then they have the power to overthrow their oppressors. And so there is a law that's placed on the books in Egypt that any Israeli son can be thrown into the Nile River and put to death for no particular reason other than the fact that they are of the nation of Israel. Ironically, when Moses is born, Moses' mother follows Pharaoh's commandments. She throws her son into the Nile, but not before she puts him into a basket. And so Moses, in the providence of God, ends up being discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh, who takes pity on him, even though she recognizes that he is one of the people who stands to be put to death because of her father's law. She takes pity on Moses, and in the kindness of God, Moses is raised in the house of Pharaoh for some 40 years. It's at the end of this time that we came to our passage last week, that Moses, we're told, left the house of Pharaoh to go and be among his people. And theologians and scholars place a great deal of emphasis on that particular verse. This is not just Moses going for a stroll. It's not just him taking a walk, but there is something in this event in which he is consciously leaving the house of Pharaoh and stepping in and choosing to identify with his ethnic heritage as a Hebrew. The first thing that Moses notices when he steps out, of, uh, out from under Pharaoh's covering and steps into the community of Israel, the first thing he sees is a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian slave master. And Moses, being deeply concerned with the injustice that's taking place, is so angry, he's so provoked that he kills the slave master to put an end to it, and he hides his body in the sand. I don't know if you've ever tried to do the right thing and had it backfire on you. If you've ever done the right thing and felt consequences you weren't expecting. But this is what happens with Moses. He's trying to do the right thing. He sees this injustice take place. He, he sees God's people being oppressed. And so he steps in to do something. But then the next day, as Moses is continuing to sort of get a feel for, for his heritage and, and this new community he stepped into, he sees two Hebrew people in an argument, and it's escalating. Every so often, around 10 o'clock at night, I have very important business that requires me to go to the Walmart up the road from my house. Namely, my scented candles have burnt out and I want my apartment to continually smell like pumpkin spice in fall. And so I take a trip to Walmart at 10 o'clock at night to go buy candles. And every once in a while, I'll hear people in the aisle next to me because Walmart after 10 o'clock is a dangerous place. I'll hear people arguing. And I always am wondering, like, what's the threshold at which I need to move over from the candle aisle and say, hey, is everything okay? Like, at what point is this just an, arg an argument between two people, and at what point do I need to step in? Where's the line of responsibility here? It seems as though the line is crossed in this argument that Moses notices. He sees these two people getting heated and more and more angry and more and more frustrated, and so finally he steps in. He says, hey, you, you all have the, the wrong enemy. You're on the same team. We're all under the yoke of Egypt. You shouldn't be at each other's throats. And as so often happens, when somebody steps into a fight, they're normally the one that catches at least a few punches. And so one of the men in the argument turns to Moses and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And in that moment, Moses knows 
that the body that he hid in the sand has been found, and he's in trouble. But something else happens in this, that moment for Moses. It becomes a profoundly disorienting event. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so my parents come from radically different backgrounds. My dad was born and raised in this very small town called Zoffo Springs, a little bit south of here. Has anybody heard of Zoffo Springs? Less people this service than the other services. Uh, more people than I expected. Zoffo Springs is a small southern town in right near Sarasota area. My dad grew up with cowboys. My dad grew up on a ranch, herding cattle, cooking food over a fire, um, hunting for alligators, doing all sorts of things that sound like a Crocodile Dundee movie. That's, that's my dad's upbringing. My grandparents are godly people. They love the Lord. My, my grandfather is a deacon in his Southern Baptist church. They love the Gaither Gospel Choir and Louis L'Amour Western novels. And from them, I learned to love Johnny Cash. <laughs> but on my mom's side, things are radically different. My, my grandmother on my mom's side is the daughter of Greek immigrants, Artemisia Demopoulos. My grandfather on my mom's side is or was an English professor at Rollins College in Orlando and also a news anchor, an academic in every sense of the word. They love Frank Sinatra and they don't listen to country music. My grandfather served on the vestry in his Episcopal church in the Diocese of Central Florida and from them, my Episcopalian family, I've learned to preach in 25 minutes or less. But these are radically different worlds. And especially as I'm getting so close to being married and family is starting to come back together that hasn't seen each other in a while, there is this strange tension because there's pieces of me on both sides of my upbringing, but I don't fit wholly in one camp. I'll be honest, beyond Johnny Cash, country music doesn't do a whole lot for me. And I'm sorry, I just lost half the room, I'm sure. <laughs> but then on my grandparents' side, like... I, Sometimes I just, I, I, I don't, on my mom's side rather, I don't want to have like PhD level discussions about literature. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I'm, I, I don't fit comfortably in either world. This is happening for Moses. Keep in mind that Moses has spent 40 years being raised as an Egyptian. He's been taught the Egyptian stories of the gods. He's been taught how to speak Egyptian. He's been taught how to think as an Egyptian. He visibly looks like an Egyptian, and yet he has consciously made the decision to set that aside and go be among the people of his ethnic heritage, the people of Israel. And yet when he comes to them, they reject him. They receive him not. They say, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to murder me like you murdered the Egyptian? Moses has no home. He's on the run from Pharaoh, and his people don't want anything to do with him. And in this moment, he knows that he has to leave. And that brings us to our passage for the morning. So if you would do me a favor as I read this, would you stand for the reading of God's word? And would you hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus chapter 2? When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man. 
And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So Moses, not being any longer at home in Egypt as a prince or in Israel as a fellow Israelite, flees to the land of Midian. And and just so you know, I had no idea where Midian was in relation to Egypt until I started getting ready for the sermon this week. But when you look at it on an ancient map, Midian is located in something called the Sinai Peninsula, which is right around where this particular mountain that will be important in a couple weeks is. It's some 285 miles from Egypt. So Moses is not just going to the next town over when he flees to Midian. This is not a day's journey. Moses flees as far as he can out from under the jurisdiction of Egypt. He's exhausted. He's weary. He's been traveling alone through the harsh wilderness. And at long last, Moses sits down, we're told, by a well. The Bible is full of people having encounters at wells. Jacob meets his wife at a well in the book of Genesis. There's this particular guy named Jesus who also encounters someone at a well a little bit later. Moses sits down at a well. But no sooner does he sit down than he gets drawn into another conflict. You'll notice that Moses sat down by a well. That's verse 15. There was a priest of Midian with seven daughters, and they came and drew water to fill the troughs of water for their father's flock. Shepherds came and drove them away, and Moses stood up. No sooner does he sit down than he stands up again, because what Moses sees is another case of injustice taking place. This is now the third time that Moses has intervened in defense of somebody who is being oppressed. The first time he steps in when he sees the Egyptian taskmaster beating the slave. The second time he steps in to break up a fight between his own fellow kinsmen. The third time Moses steps in because he sees these shepherds and they're driving these women away from the well, very likely taking advantage of their marginalized status in ancient society. Maybe they're cutting in line. Maybe they're scaring them off. But Moses sees these women being taken advantage of and he can't sit down. He can't abide by it. He can't let it happen. He stands up and he does something. The third time. And have you noticed that every other time he stepped in on behalf of somebody, something bad has happened to him? And yet he still continues to stand. Which underscores something that the New Testament tells us about Moses. Moses is a decent man. Moses is concerned with people being treated fairly. Moses is concerned with the oppressed being given justice. And not just his fellow Israelites. In the first two instances, Moses is defending his fellow Israelites. But here, he is a long way from home, both Egyptian and Hebrew. He doesn't know these people. He's not related to these people. He has no idea what's going on, and yet when he sees it, he can't abide by it, and he stands and does something. And that underscores something that should be really important for us, Baylife, something that should be significant for us. We serve a just God, amen? We should care about the justice of God going forth in the world. We should be a people who cannot abide by injustice, if indeed our God is just like we say he is. It's Orphan Awareness Weekend. 
we as a church set aside this weekend to highlight the plight of a particular group in our community that is so often pushed to the margins, that is so often driven away, that so often falls through the cracks, that is so often ignored. We set aside this time to care for people who like the daughters of the priests of Midian are being driven away. We need to care when we see injustice, when we see evil, when we see oppression. But so often, here's what happens, is we, we have things like Orphan Awareness Sunday and we walk past all of the opportunities to connect, all of the opportunities like Moses to stand up and do the right thing, and we don't. We don't do anything. And what's at work there is something that psychologists call the bystander principle. In the 1960s, there was a case that caused psychologists to, to explore this reality in the human psyche known as the bystander principle. There was a woman named Kitty Genovese who worked as a bartender in New York City. And because of that, she worked late hours. And there was one night that she was coming home from a shift and she'd parked in the lot of her apartment complex. There were 38 people living in the apartment complex. And there was a man who noticed an opportunity to rob her and he robbed her at knife point. And, and during the struggle, she ended up being stabbed several times. And in the process, she cried out for help and all of her neighbors heard. A couple of them turned their lights on, walked out onto the front porch and said, hey, leave that lady alone. And when the man saw that there were witnesses, he fled off into the distance. But as soon as the neighbors saw the man leave, they went right back into their houses and went back to what they were doing. And so then she spent the next hour or so trying to crawl to her apartment so she could call the police because she had been injured. And then the man came back. And the apartment complex inhabitants stepped out and said, hey, leave that lady alone. And he fled. And then he came back a third time, and this time he killed her. And when the police uncovered this, they went to everyone in the apartment complex and they said, why didn't you call us? Why didn't you do anything? And everyone said, we thought someone else would. We thought somebody else was going to do it. It's the bystander principle. The more witnesses there are to an act of evil, the more inclined we are to assume someone else will be the person to do something. Imagine then in a church of 1,200 how easily we fall victim to this. Somebody else who walked past those flags will make the donation. Somebody else who's heard about Village of Hope will care for these orphans. Somebody else will volunteer in children's ministry where they so desperately need help. Somebody else will do it. There's 1,200 people. Surely I'm not responsible. We serve a God who acts. We need to act. And the church has always recognize this from its foundations. Can I tell you that in Roman society, it was legal for parents to leave their unwanted children in the wilderness to die of exposure. So if a child was born with any sort of um, defect, Roman parents would just leave their kids in the woods around the city to die. If the Roman parents had wanted a, a boy instead of a girl, they would leave the child out. That is until Christianity entered Roman culture. Because Christians took seriously what Genesis 1 says, that human beings are made in the image of God, and because of that alone, they are worthy of dignity and value and respect. And so Christians started combing the woods around their cities and adopting the unwanted children that their Roman neighbors had left to die. 
And this caused no shortage of conflicts when the Christian couple next door showed up with a brand new baby even though the wife wasn't pregnant. But Christians recognized that the people who were so often pushed to the margins of society, in particular slaves, women, and children, they said these people have dignity and worth and value. And no matter what society says about them, we will treat them with dignity and value. Women in the church became deaconesses. Slaves became bishops. Children were welcomed into the worship service. They weren't seen as a nuisance, but they were seen as people with value. This rattled society. There was a Roman critic of Christianity, a man named Celsus, and he wrote this as a criticism of Christianity. So hear this as the words of a pagan saying, here's what's wrong with Christians. He wrote this in the first century. Celsus said this, Christians admit that ignorant people are worthy of their God. Christians show that they want to convert only foolish, dishonorable, stupid people like slaves, women, and children. That's his criticism of the church, that Christians care about the people that Romans don't. I wish that that was the criticism we got now, that we, like Moses, stood up when people were being mistreated and said, not on my watch, this is not okay. My God is just and I long to see justice. From the account in front of us, it seems as though Jephthah's daughters accept Moses' kindness and then sort of just leave him at the well. Moses waters the flock and then they go back home. We're told that when they came home to their father, Ruel, He said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? Apparently, Ruel was aware of the fact that drawing water from the well took a long time because of some pesky shepherds. He said to his daughters, the daughters said to him, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Interesting that even now they view Moses as an Egyptian. Even here, Moses isn't at home. And it never occurs to them to invite Moses back for dinner. So the father says, what are you doing? Bring this man back. And Moses comes to live with Ruel, later called Jethro. And it appears that Moses enters a really sweet season in his life. This is the time in which Moses marries. This is the time in which Moses has a son. He's out of the clutches of Egypt. If this were a fairy tale, this is where the story would end. He has won the hand of the princess He has escaped the dragon of Pharaoh, and he lives happily ever after. And what we know from Scripture is that Moses stays in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years, which is interesting, isn't it? Because Moses is led out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years before he goes back to lead Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years. He goes through his own exodus before he leads the people there. But in 40 years, no doubt, Moses' memories of Egypt grow dim. That's something that is in his past. He did what he could. He wasn't accepted. He flees. He starts a new life for himself. And yet things during those 40 years in Egypt are changing. We're told in verse 23 that during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. 
During his 40 years, no doubt Moses has forgotten or at least pushed to the back of his mind what is going on back home. But the king has died, and Israel remains in captivity. And even if Moses has forgotten, God has not. It's an astounding thing that this passage says, that the people of Israel groaned and God heard their groaning. When you just think about the the vastness of the cosmos, that God heard the groaning from the lips of this particular people in this particular nation in this particular corner of this planet in this solar system, in this galaxy, in this cosmos, the infinite, immutable, eternal, impassable God who does not change, who is sovereign over all, he heard them. He heard their groaning. Man, if you are in a valley right now, that should give you hope. That should give you hope. For those of you who are in the depths, whether it's cancer or children walking away, whether it's depression or disease, your cries of anguish, your prayers of pleading, your groaning for deliverance, it is heard. It does not bounce off of the ceiling back at you, but God hears it. God is not blind to Israel's agony. Moses may or may not have forgotten, but Yahweh has not. It's an interesting little phrase in this passage. When God heard their cry, he remembered his covenant. We had a conversation about this in our pastor's uh, sermon meeting this week. What does it mean to say that God remembers? Are we saying that God forgotten? And I don't think that's what the passage implies. It's shot through with what theologians call anthropomorphic language, which is, a, is an SAT word to be sure. Basically, anthropomorphic language is using human terminology to explain in an imperfect way something that God is doing. So the passage says that God sees Israel's plight, but that's not as if the light has bounced off of the event and finally reached the conicals of God's eyeballs. In the same way, it says that God heard their groaning. We're not saying that the sound waves finally made it through space and into heaven in God's inner ear. It's a metaphorical way of communicating reality. In the same way, when it says that God remembers, it's not as though he's forgotten. But this is so important. Israel has been in slavery for 400 years. That is twice the length of the existence of our country. 400 years ago, the printing press was a new thing and the world was lit by torches. Israel has been in slavery for that long. And here's something that happens when we walk through long seasons of pain. The temptation is that that pain would become a central and defining feature of who we are. So that if Israel were asked by somebody, who are you? One of the first things they would say is we're slaves. That's who we are. Our pain comes to define us. It becomes wrapped up in our identity in ways that are destructive. there was a, a pop singer who I'm sure nobody's ever heard of called Taylor Swift who just released this new, this new record and it's, it's sort of like her ode to love because she's finally in a healthy relationship. But prior to this, there was this phenomena that would happen with every Taylor Swift record. There was a question that people would ask with every song. So who is this about? Because Every song was a breakup song, and it was always about somebody who had had wronged her or a relationship that had fallen apart. Because that was her reality for so long, 
that it became a defining feature of her identity. She is the person who writes breakup songs. Listen, we do the same thing. When we walk through really long seasons of darkness, really long seasons of pain, we come to define ourselves by those things so that we, when asked, who are you, we say things like, I'm single, I'm divorced, I'm depressed, I'm broke, I'm sick, that's who I am. When Israel's asked, who are you, they say, we are slaves, but that's not what God sees when he looks at Israel. It's not as though he ignores that. He hears their groaning. He recognizes their suffering. He sees their pain. But when God looks at Israel, what does he see? He sees that they are the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he looks at Israel, he does not just see a people that are enslaved. He sees a people with whom he has made a covenant. He sees a people through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. When God looks at Israel, he does not just see the sum of their afflictions. He sees the promise that he has made to them. He sees that they are his people. So too with you, in your suffering, in your pain, I'm not asking you to ignore it. I'm not asking you to pretend like it's not there. I'm not asking you to to set it in the back of your mind and forget about it. But recognize that if you are in Christ. When the Lord looks at you, he does not just see your blood, sweat, and tears, but he sees you as someone for whom the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus have been shed. He does not just see your pain, but he sees his covenant faithfulness that you are his. It's interesting that this is the first time in the book of Exodus that Israel has cried out to God. Whether it happened before, we don't know. This is the first time Exodus tells us that Israel cried out for deliverance. But what's fascinating is that God has been at work preparing to deliver Israel before they even asked for it. He spared Moses' life when he was thrown into the Nile. He's led Moses out into the wilderness to escape the death penalty from Pharaoh. He's about to meet Moses at Mount Sinai at the burning bush. Before Israel even asks, God has already begun the process of delivering them. This underscores something really, really, really important. When it comes to redemption, God always has the first word. God always takes the first step. God is always the initiator. The New Testament will tell us that we love him because he first loved us. God is always the first actor in redemption. Israel cries out to be delivered, and God says, I'm already working on it. Israel is groaning, but they don't groan into a void. God sees them. God hears them. And I love what verse 25 says. He saw the people of Israel, and he knew. He knew their pain. Listen, the same is true for us. Whatever valley you might find yourself walking through, rest in this fact that you are both known and loved by the Lord who hears. And he does indeed hear. In some ways, the church now, after the incarnation of Christ, is in the same position as Israel. 
It's not just we who groan. Paul tells us all of creation is groaning for deliverance. The whole world is groaning to be set free from captivity to sin. And we as Christians cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, deliver us. And make no mistake, as surely as Moses returned from Midian, Jesus will return to set us free. The true and better Moses to lead us May you rest in that this week. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we know you hear us. Spirit, you are the Lord of hearing and you are faithful. God, I pray that both in the good and in the bad, we would cry out to you, both with joy and with groans of agony. Lord, that we would cry out to you knowing that you hear, that you see that you know and that you act. God, remind us of your faithfulness. Rid us of our idols, God. The things we put in your place, they can't hear us, they don't see us, they don't know us, but you do. And you can save. We ask all these things in Christ's name. And we say, amen. Just stand, let's continue in worship.